This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with senior members of the U.S. intelligence community and those who write about them. Today, I have a very interesting guest. His name is Bruce Henderson. He's a prolific author with over 20 books. He actually served in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam War. He went to college on the GI Bill. He worked as an investigative reporter for the L.A. Herald Examiner. He contributed to a number of periodicals. He has taught writing at the USC School of Journalism and at Stanford. His most recent book is Sons and Soldiers, which is a New York Times bestseller about the Ritchie boys. But most recently, and the topic of today's conversation is he has a brand new book out called Bridge to the Sun, which is the story of Japanese-American soldiers who fought in the Pacific. Bruce, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you, Jim. Bruce, this is a fascinating topic. I think many of our audience would have heard about the 442nd Infantry Regiment that fought in Italy, but this is really quite different. How did you get started on this journey? Well, I was still researching my previous book about the Ritchie boys, um, Sons and Soldiers, and I was at the archives and uh, going through material, and of course, they were trained by the Military Intelligence Service, MIS, and they had their own language school, um, and... Uh, I, I came across the fact that there were several thousand Japanese-American soldiers trained by the MIS at a different camp for their Japanese language skills and were sent into the Pacific to essentially do the same thing that the Ritchie boys did in Europe. And I was, I was surprised. I have written several books on, on World War II, including a couple on the Pacific theater, and had no idea, like a lot of Folks, I had heard about the 442nd Infantry, all Nisei Infantry uh, combat team that fought in Europe and how decorated they were. My gosh, there's been movies and books about them for, for years, and they were even well-publicized during the war. But these Nisei who went over to the Pacific, not so. And in fact, I I made a note and I said, well, when I finish with the Ritchie boys, I'm going to circle back and and take a look at this, and and that's exactly what I did, and it started really a, a four-year journey for me. I'd say about half of that in being research, and uh, the other half uh, writing this book, Bridge to the Sun. Bruce, I'm interested in uh, kind of where and how you did uh, your research. Where were you able to find material, and, and who were you able to talk to to get the wealth of detail that you present in the book? Well, as you well know, it's getting more difficult to find World War II veterans who are still with us. Um, you know, we've lost so many of them, and even those who were the youngest during the war are well into their 90s now. So we're having to shift, for example, on, on the um, Ritchie Boys, six characters that I chose to follow throughout the war, and in fact, starting even in the 30s when they were in, in, in Germany uh, and, and their plight of, of getting out of uh, Nazi-occupied Europe, um, four of those six men were alive when I, when I started re researching that book. And in fact, two of them are still alive at, at 100. Amazing, amazing guys. Nisei that I chose of the six, only one was still alive. He was, and I was able to meet with him once shortly before he died. But the, the real meat of the research, if you will, comes from really oral histories. Um, oral histories or otherwise lengthy interviews that they have given over the years when they were younger 
uh, and, you know, have had good memories of, of the details. And uh, short of me being able to sit down, and in the case of those four Richie boys that were alive, I went, I went to, to, to their towns and sat with them for three, four, five days, interviewing, taping, going to transcript on them, really asking in-depth questions. If I can't do that, I still have to get that kind of material somehow. And uh, not every oral history is, 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 is equal. Uh, some of the people asking the questions aren't, let me say, they're not asking the right questions. How did you feel? Uh, uh, what were you uh, thinking about your family, you know, in the internment camp? Uh, you have to really get some good questions. And then, of course, the person being interviewed has to be willing to dig deep because that's the kind of material that makes a narrative nonfiction book like I like to write. Frankly, I like to write a book about a big story through the lives of a few who lived it. And I, I've really got to have that kind of material. And so in the case of Bridge to the Sun, I considered about 20 or 25 of these uh, of these vets. Um, and uh, before making my final selection, that was going to be too many uh, to keep coming back to. I thought it would confuse the reader. I wanted some coverage, good coverage of the war in the Pacific. In other words, I didn't want all uh, all of my characters to be at Iwo Jima at the same time. I wanted one to be there. I wanted another one to be in Burma, another one in Okinawa, another up in the Aleutians. And I wanted that kind of coverage of the Pacific theater. So that all went into the the selection of 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 the of the cast, as I call them, but the material um, that really and if that really made the story and uh, each that each one lived came came from those in-depth interviews that I had to find. Bruce, remind our audience what the climate was like in the United States at that time for Japanese Americans, particularly after um, FDR's executive order. Well, you know, even before Pearl Harbor, there were very discriminatory laws on the books, particularly on the West Coast, uh, where most of the uh, ethnic Japanese lived, uh, and um, uh, they couldn't, for example, in, in if they couldn't, in most cases, own their own land. They had to farm rented land. Uh, the the parents who were the immigrants who actually came over from Japan, uh, even when they wanted to, they could not become naturalized citizens. It was they just couldn't. Not like the Italians or not like the Germans. It was just not allowed. Okay. When they had children uh, and they were would be known as the Nisei, they were the first generation of Japanese Americans born to these these immigrant parents. They of course were natural born citizens upon upon birth and uh, but they were Japanese. And so even though they were as American as as any of the other kids in the public school, there was, you know, already they were growing up with this anti-Asian feeling in their, even in their small communities. So after Pearl Harbor was attacked, it, it just multiplied times a hundred. Uh, anything having to do with the Japanese was, uh, you know, was was frowned upon. Was was it, it was horrible. The, the, they were getting beat beaten up in in their schools. They were. Well, in a very short order, the you know the government decided that we couldn't keep these ethnic Japanese on the West Coast 
because there was security threat and we had too many military installations on the West Coast. So they rounded them up under the executive order that FDR signed and put them in the internment camps. And of the some 120,000 folks who were in those camps, about 60% of them were American citizens. And I, I found that fact really astounding and, uh, and that an American citizen could just simply be rounded up and, and, and put into, into camp because of their ethnicity. And, um, and so they were in, a lot of them were in the camps, particularly, as I say, on the West Coast. Um, and they were sent to these, you know, godforsaken desert uh, um, kind of um, camps in Arizona and Arkansas and some of the dreariest places in, uh, in the country and uh, put behind Bob R. And there were gun towers there. And by the way, I got pictures in the book. The machine guns in the gun towers were not pointed outward. They were pointed inward. They weren't worried about somebody breaking into the camp. They were they were worried about people getting out. And so that was the atmosphere that, you know, that they were that they were living. And the, the parents who were the immigrant Japanese, there, there was a lot of shame that their homeland, Japan, had attacked uh, America. And for the kids, the Japanese Americans, uh, America was their country. And so their parents were very quick to say, you know, Japan is our country and we're ashamed at, at what happened. America is your country. Uh, when they will call you, please go and fight for your country. And that's that's what they did, Denise. Bruce, at least several of the subjects of your book were actually recruited out of the internment camps. How did they feel about that? Yeah. I mean, how is that for an irony that the government says we don't trust you, so we're going to round you up and throw you in this camp. And three or four months into the war, when the army realizes we need language skills in the Pacific, we need to be able to read uh, the captured enemy documents that are coming in off the battlefield. We need to be able to interrogate Japanese prisoners. We need all this. And where are we going to find these Japanese uh, folks with Japanese language skills? Well, they're in the camps. So here come the army recruiters from military intelligence into the camps to say, we need you. And, you know, I can't say that there was 100% people in the camps who were happy to see them. I mean, there was some bitterness there, as you might well imagine. Um, but uh, these young men were stepping forward and, and were volunteering uh, to, to go in, to be trained. They understood that they would be sent to the Pacific. This is military intelligence. They were going to learn. They were going to learn interrogation skills, uh, translation, interpretation of military documents. Uh, they were going to do this six-month program at Camp Savage in Minnesota and then be sent in small teams to the Pacific to fight against their ancestral homeland. And they did. What kind of training uh, did they receive at Camp Savage? Well, it, it was certainly equal to, you know, any college program of, of the day. Uh, and in fact, the, the most valuable Japanese Americans, to, as far as the army was concerned, were those young men who, as boys, had been sent by their parents to Japan for a year, two, sometimes three, to go to school there, to, to meet the relatives, to uh, appreciate the, the culture, the language. Um, and, of course, then they came home before, before the war broke out. 
but they they had the kind of language skills that you know that the army was looking for and uh but even so uh and they were called kibe by the way kibe that would be a nisei who went to japan and then returned um and they were again were american citizens but, they, and, but although some of those kibe got caught in japan that's another story uh after after pearl harbor they didn't get home in time but um uh, the program that they went through in 6 months i mean it's uh reading and translation and Japanese military terms, Japanese army as well as American army, um, interrogation, interpretation, captured documents. What could you say and how uh, and not say to uh, a prisoner of war how to handle them? And by the way, there was it, it was absolutely off uh, off the books to do anything, anything that later became known as enhanced interrogation. These guys realized that you don't get valuable information by torturing somebody or hurting somebody. Uh, that, that just makes them say anything to get you to stop hurting them. They, you know, hopefully wanted to find a bit of a, a bond with them. And then, by the way, the Japanese army prisoners who were um, those who were taken prisoner in the Pacific, whenever they were faced with an, a Japanese American in, in arm, army uniform, uh, they were astounded. They had no idea that we had Jap our own Japanese over here that were in the army. And so that that threw them off. But the courses were, you know, Japanese shorthand, uh, social, which is what the uh, the uh, Japanese soldiers would use for writing in their own diaries. And by the way, GIs were forbidden to keep a diary for obvious reasons uh, in the field. If they got captured or killed, you know, that could be um, could could be turned over to the enemy. The Japanese soldiers were actually encouraged to keep diaries. So there were a lot of these kind of documents coming off the battlefield. And uh, again, these our our teams, our military intelligence teams had to know how to read these and and get the valuable information from them. But I mean, it was Japanese geography. It was radio monitoring. It was intercepting uh, radio calls. Uh, lectures on Japanese society, history, politics, all crammed into six months, mind you. And these students were simply, most of them had really never done anything beyond high school. So it was it was a, an, an, an incredible course. And in fact, we have, we have a few pictures that we might be able to put up. Um, can we, can we, can, when I talk a little bit about that now? Please go ahead, yes. Okay, well, the first picture is a, a group of the young Japanese Americans actually being recruited uh, at, at one of the camps and sworn in. You know, raise your right hand, and we're going to swear you in right here in this camp. And so this is a group of them. And what's interesting is one of the characters in my book, uh, Roy Matsumoto, was, uh, was recruited at, at his camp down in Arizona. And he was one of 12 on, on the first the first go around when the uh, military intelligence uh, recruiters came in. And uh, he said after, after they did the oath and they were officially in the army that the army uh, snuck them out at four in the morning out the back gate because they didn't want um, any kind of, you know, unrest or demonstration about them coming in and recruiting these young men. I mean, they were, there was some concern, but still these guys were willing to go. And most of them, in fact, one of them said, the last thing his mother said to him was, go make us proud. And that was the feeling that they left the camp with. 
the second picture is is a good picture of the classroom uh, at um, uh, at the language school, and uh, they this one, and then the next picture uh, is a picture of them hitting the books. And uh, this was really uh, six days a week, and then the seventh day was was filled with uh, homework. And a lot of these guys, like the army, usually does lights out at. 10 o'clock at night. But after the lights went out, they discovered that the only place that still had lights on was was the uh, latrine. And so they would all end up uh, in the latrine doing their doing their book work. Um, and uh, so, again, it was quite a program and not everybody did graduate. And those that, that washed out uh, were returned to their to regular army units and uh, in other words, they weren't sent back to the camps. They were, they were, they stayed in the army. But uh, it was, it was, it was a tough program. Um, another picture, the fourth picture is uh, Merrill, uh, General Frank Merrill of Merrill's Marauders in Burma, and this is a picture with uh, two of the Nisei interpreters, his personal interpreters, who were with him. They were uh, two of um, twelve men. A 12-man MIS team, all Nisei, that were assigned to Merrill's Marauders. And you'll note, you know, um, these guys had guns. Uh, and so they were in a war. Uh, they were qual fully qualified. They were really infantrymen as well. They weren't just doing, you know, the book work. Uh, they, were, they were fighting when, uh, when they needed to, which was in a place like Burma quite, quite often. Um, the next picture is uh, a soldier, one of my characters, Kazu, Kazu Komodo. And he, he's, he is, uh, dis, has a couple of distinctions. One is that he was the first Nisei uh, wounded in World War II, and that was in July 1943. He was in uh, um, the assault on, uh, on New Georgia in the Solomons and was shot in the knee. And uh, this was even before the 442nd went over to Europe. So he was the first who was wounded. And he's in the hospital here, and um, uh, an army hospital in Fiji. And uh, when Eleanor Roosevelt is making a tour of the military hospitals in the South Pacific, and she visited dozens and dozens of them and literally thousands of, of patients and uh, just bed to bed to bed, you know, greeting them. Um, and so you can see, you know, he's beaming. He's really delighted to have the president's wife here. But he also, and this, by the way, is the one fellow who was still alive when I started my work and I was able to go out and meet him and talk to him. And uh, he said, you know, he, he felt he really needed to just tell her how he, how he felt about this. So within a few seconds of this picture being taken where he's smiling at her, he says, you know, Mrs. Roosevelt, um, my family is is in a camp in Arizona behind Bob Wire, my my little brothers and sister and my parents, and I'm out here being shot. And that's a raw deal. And she said, Well, I can tell you that they're being well cared for. I've visited some of those camps. Um, I will be sure and pass on your feelings to the president. Well, Later, Komodo admitted he said he felt a little guilty challenging the president's wife about that. But by God, he just felt he needed to get it off his chest. I should say that when when Komodo came to the United back to uh, uh, the uh, United States, he was in the hospital for another 30 days recovering. 
And then he was able to go down and visit his family in Arizona. And he took the train and the bus, got off one town short of the camp and, and decided he would take some groceries in to the camp. He'd heard they didn't have a lot of fresh meats and whatnot. So he stopped at this grocery and he went in and he went to the back where the butcher was and uh, he was looking at the meats and and the butcher looks over and says, we don't sell no meat to no Japs. And Komodo says, um, I'm not a Jap, I'm an American. And I'm in uniform and you're not. And I would like the following. <laughs> so the butcher finally, you know, I guess he looked over and realized this guy is in uniform and has some ribbons on. So he sold him the meat. But what I said was, what I believed after seeing, uh, you know, the, these kinds of scenes that these guys went through repeatedly is that they were really fighting two wars simultaneously. They were over in the Pacific fighting the war against Japan. But then they would come home and they were fighting this a war here about racial uh, discrimination and prejudice. And uh, and it was that never let let up. And but they knew what the priorities were. You have to win the first war in the Pacific before you can come home and try to win this war. Uh, here's another picture of Kazu Komodo um, with his brother. And this was on that visit to the camp. And this, every time I see this picture, it wants to bring a tear out of my eye because, uh, you know, it's just so, so striking. He is, has his little brother on his knee and he's showing him his, his purple heart. For being wounded in combat, and uh, the 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 pride that they both have uh, in this is just is visceral. Um, let's see, we got a, another picture, a photo of number seven of Warren Warren Higa, Higa um, and he's uh, Okinawan, uh, born in Hawaii, and he and his brother Takahiro ended up on the same uh, language team and were. Um, uh, in Okinawa, at Okinawa, for for that really, which is the last battle of of the Pacific War, and here he is interrogating um, a Japanese prisoner uh, at Okinawa, and and the last photo is of the two brothers, uh, Takahiro and Warren Higa. Um, Takahiro is an interesting fellow. He he was born in Hawaii and then went to Okinawa at age two with his parents, and then. Uh, stayed and uh, didn't return to Hawaii until he was 17 or 18 years old. So he not only knew Japanese, but he knew the local Hawaiian, um, uh, Okinawan dialect and, of course, English. And when he was recruited by the military intelligence, he, he, he was ready to do it. But his fear, his fear from the get-go was that he would end up having to fight on Okinawa. And, you know, to fight cousins and... Um, classmates and he he really hoped that he could be sent somewhere else in the pacific that didn't bother him but but okinawa did so of course he ended up in the invasion of okinawa and uh, when the uh, infantry uh division um intelligence folks found and they were on uh, at um in the philippines planning the invasion of okinawa when they found out they had in their midst uh, a fellow who was from okinawa they started bringing Takahiro in on a daily basis for about a month and showing him uh, photo reconnaissance, the photos and, and, and different things. And I, I know the first day that they brought him in, they were, they were showing in these photos and they said, see these 
concrete pill boxes and these machine guns on the coast, and we're going to have to wipe wipe them out before we get in there. And Taco Hero takes you know the little eyeglass, and he's looking at him. He said, "Sir, th- those are not machine guns. Those are family tombs, and uh, we probably shouldn't blow them up." So I mean, he actually knew what was on the ground and was was quite helpful in the in the planning of it. But then when he they hit the beach. Uh, the beaches at Okinawa, almost immediately, uh, Taco Hero and these other um, interpreters uh, w- began going out to these caves to try to talk the civilians into not blowing themselves up because they had been uh, really uh, brainwashed by the Japanese into saying that if they were captured by the Americans, they were going to you know, die horrible, torturous deaths. And better to to choose your own time and to go out with your family in a cave than than to have that happen. And so Takahiro and the others were uh, at these at the mouths of these caves, one after the other after the other. And sometimes there'd be two hundred people in a cave, and and then even having to leave to go to the next cave before he real knew if anybody came out of that the first cave. So fifty years later, there's kind of a wonderful ending for Takahiro's service. He goes back to Okinawa. By then, he's a man in his 70s. The local newspaper does a story on him. And the next day, the newspaper reporter calls and says, there's somebody who would like to meet you. So they set up a meeting at a restaurant. And Taco Hero is waiting when an older lady walks in with a younger woman. And they come right over to him. They recognize his picture from the paper. And the older woman says, I was a young girl in, in, in a cave. And I remember you. I remember what you said because it was in the article. You know, I am an Okinawan boy. I am in the army, American army. We will feed you. We will care for you. Please come out. I am an Okinawan boy. And he kept repeating that. And she said, I remember that refrain. I remember what you said. And I want to thank you for my life. I came out of the cave and you gave me, you know, the last, these last 50 years that I've lived. And then the younger woman spoke up and says, I must thank you too, because I am her daughter. And if she hadn't come out, uh, I, I wouldn't have my life. And so for Takahiro, who never once fired his gun in Okinawa, uh, but saved just an enorm- innumerable people, um, he felt like he had really done his duty. He'd done his duty for America, and he'd been able to save people at the same time who he, who he cared about. Bruce, that's a great story. How many Nisei ended up serving in the Pacific? Well, let's see. There were uh, about 33,000 Nisei served in World War II. 20, about 20, 22,000 went over to Europe in the 442nd. And there was another unit called the 100th that fought over in Europe. And there were 6,000 graduates of the Military Intelligence Language School. And of those, uh, close to 4,000 ended up uh, going into the to the Pacific during the war, uh, and by the way, a lot of these when the war ended, they were in Japan helping with the occupation. And in fact, the language school continued to uh, pump out graduates for another couple of years uh, because there was a huge demand, as you can imagine, in the occupation for uh, for translators and interrogators or um, interpreters. As they were serving with combat units in the Pacific, how were they treated by other GIs? Yeah, I was really interested in that too, Jim. Um, I mean, given how they were being treated in the United States, I mean, it uh, once they got with their units, what was that like? And it was rather surprising because 
Well, there was this, there were definitely scenes. For example, there was um, the team that was going over to join Merle's Merle's Marauders. That uh, w- they were on a troop ship, and there were twelve of them, and they were on a troop ship with um, uh, two or three thousand uh, uh, infantrymen, GIs, from a um, Texas uh, National Guard unit that had been activated, and some of these fellows from Texas had frankly never seen a Japanese American. And um, so it was decided initially that they were going to keep the um, the Nisei uh, in a stateroom down below and not have them come on deck. They thought that would be safer. Uh, their officers did. And so they had their own, you know, food was brought to them. They had their own uh, wash facilities and whatnot. Well, but then a rumor started circulating around the ship that they had Japanese prisoners of war aboard. And they're, uh, well, let's go down and get them and throw them overboard. And they were in the middle of the ocean. So the officers decided it might be safer to bring these guys up and, you know, explain who they are and introduce them. So they did. They brought the they brought the Nisei soldiers up and they brought them up on the deck. And there was an audience of, um, you know, a thousand or two <laughs> infantrymen. And they said, OK, these guys are as American as you, born mostly in California, some in Hawaii, some in uh, and um, they're here for a very good reason. And when we get over there, uh, we're really going to need them. And um, they're going to they're going to not only help us win a battle, but they're going to help us. They're going to save American lives. Well, suddenly, you know, they're they were considered valuable and uh, and they were treated well. And as a matter of fact, on some of these invasions on these islands, if you can imagine, I mean, here they are. They've got the face of the enemy. There's nothing they can do about that. To ensure that they weren't accidentally shot by friendly fire, uh, you know, they were assigned a, a security guard, you know, like a, a Marine sergeant or something would follow them around and make sure that, you know, if they ran into some GIs who didn't know who this guy was, that, you know, that would get, that would get, a, they would get, you know, protected. Well, let me say that, there were incidents of friendly fire. There were incidents of Nisei in the American uniform uh, being accidentally shot by American troops. But they're few and far between. And I never came across anything that was uh, purposeful or, you know, anything like that. They, they, were, they were valued, valued assets. For those Nisei who found their way back to um, um, mainland Japan uh, at the end of the war, what was that like for them? Yeah, well, what did they come home to? For the many of their families actually never returned home. The farmland that they, you know, that they had been their parents had been working was gone already, you know, the neighbors had taken it over, houses had been, you know, sold at auction. I mean, a lot of the families went elsewhere, really didn't didn't even try to go home, and then those that did would get you know, mixed reactions because they were still Japanese. And that's another thing about these vets, these Japanese Americans. I mean, uh, they weren't the type that uh, would join, would go down to the veterans hall every Thursday, you know, to shoot pool and have a beer. Uh, they walk in and they're Japanese and we just had a war with Japan. So it, there wasn't, it wasn't a welcome mat them uh, in anywhere, even in those veteran circles where there really should have been. And in the case of the MIS, these small teams, they weren't, it wasn't like they, you know, were able to 
go to the uh, reunion for the 101st Airborne um, after the war because they were on a sm- in a small team and they, they just knew of, uh, other than once they got out of school, they just knew of a few others like them on the same team. So they weren't given to, uh, you know, those kind of reunions. Plus, when they were discharged, you should add, they were reminded pointedly that they were military intelligence and they could not just walk out on the street and start talking about what they had done. Uh, and so officially, you know, their the, what they did was not declassified for another 40 years. And so a lot of them never did talk about what they did, not even to their own families. And in fact, I get both in the case of, uh, of the Ritchie boys, but also the Nisei, I, I hear from families who say, well, you've uncovered more information about our father or grandfather or uncle or whatever the case is, than we knew in the family, because he never really talked to us about it. And so, and a lot of them really took what they did to the graves with, with them um, without telling anyone. Bruce, do you have any particular takeaways after this uh, project? I discovered the story rather as admittedly rather by accident, but in looking at 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 the story of the Japanese Americans in the Pacific in the World War II, I honestly believe that there's no better time for this book to come out than today in this country today, because you know, sadly, we we still have anti-immigrant uh, sentiments um, uh, prevalent uh, in our society, and we are in a country that I think way too often prejudges people based on on ethnicity, countries of origin. In the case of these these Nisei, I mean they they rose to the occasion to and showed us, I think, all what you know true patriotism was was all about. And I think that, you know, their story is one that should not be forgotten. Well it's a fascinating story. Very well researched, marvelously well told. In my view, it is a must read for all patriotic Americans, no matter what age or what background. I'd like to thank Bruce Henderson for having brought really this fabulous story to our audience. Thank you, Jim.